Why does Satan torment us? Do Christians have a license to sin? All this and more today on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Wednesday podcast. This is Toby with BibleStudyPodcast.org, and today is May the 9th. It's Wednesday, and of course, on Wednesdays, we do our cultural issues and apologetics. And as I had promised you guys, on the second Wednesday of every month, we're going to be doing a Q&A session where you all can send in your questions to me, and I will do my best to answer them or give you my best answer, my best response. And I want to thank all of you who did send in your questions. I'm always so blessed to hear from you. And I think it's healthy for you to be asking questions because that's our nature. We want to understand things. And I think God made us that way. Why did he make us that way? So that we would ultimately be drawn back to him. So I think asking questions is a very healthy thing for a Christian to do. I still ask questions. I still, you know, look for answers in various things. And, you know, I hope you do too. I just have one quick announcement for you today. Uh, You know, I am always looking for ways to improve this podcast for you guys. And so what I did is I took this survey that I got from one of my classes, and I'm going to go ahead and post it on the website under today's podcast. And if you have time or, you know, if you if you don't mind doing so, could you go there and you can either copy and paste it and, uh, you know, just click contact up at the top and, you know, email it to me or you can fill it out right there on the website. You know, either one is fine. I'm just looking for ways to improve what we've got here because I really want this ministry to be a blessing to you. My goal here is to help all of us, myself and especially you guys, get closer to the Lord. And so in order to do that, I am looking for some positive and, you know, constructive criticism. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, just you know, doing a great job, keep it the same, or, you know, what do you want to see with this podcast? So if you don't mind, go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and just click on today's podcast. That's Wednesday, uh, May 9th, and you'll find the survey in there. And if you could just get that to me, I would be so blessed by that. Without any further ado, uh, as I said, today is our question and answer session. And so we're going to be reading a couple emails that um, that were sent in to me with some questions. The first one is from Donna, who wrote, If once saved, always saved was valid, then why would the devil bother us so much as we try to serve the Lord? If he could not get us back, what is the point? And actually, Angie, one of my friends on MySpace, asked a similar question about the once saved, always saved doctrine. And you know, this is this is something that is very important to me. This doctrine is very important to me. And to be honest, if we're really going to get into to discussing this, it's going to take a whole podcast. But it's a good question. So I'll tell you what, next week, next Wednesday, which will be May the 16th, we will go over this very issue. That'll be our subject for next week. We'll talk about the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and the eternal security of the believer. But just to give you a short answer on this, you know, why would the devil bother us so much as we try to serve the Lord? You know, Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth. And why did he call us that? Why did he call us the salt of the earth? Because we're supposed to be different. The salt is different from the meat and the salt preserves the meat. 
And what happens when the salt loses its saltiness? It all goes bad. The meat all goes bad. Nothing's good. So part of Satan's goal, I think, is to make us lose our saltiness, try to render us so ineffective by tripping us up in sin and, you know, making our lives difficult that we lose our saltiness. And the way this works is, you know, we get caught in a sin and we start thinking, well, you know, God can't use me now. And when we start believing that, Satan has succeeded in his goal. He cannot take us away from God. But what he can do is render us ineffective. If we are supposed to be the light of the world, he's trying to blow that light out. He knows he can't, you know, take us away. We are God's children. But what he can do is make our lives difficult, make us feel like we are worthless to God, and make us feel like we would be of no use to God. So I believe that is exactly Satan's goal. That's what he's trying to do, because the more we lose our saltiness, the less effective we'll be for not only this generation, but future generations as well. But thank you, Donna. That's an excellent question. And thank you to you too, Angie. I appreciate this question. I'm going to be answering the whole thing about eternal security and um, once saved, always saved next Wednesday. Our next question comes from Amanda, who was recently converted to Christianity. Praise the Lord. But she wrote, ever since I started reading the Bible consistently, I feel like I've been getting attacked. People are saying that Christians have a license to sin. The only passage I could find to refute that is 1 John 3, 6-9. Do you know of any other passages? How do I respond to people who have been saying to me something along the lines of, congrats, you've found a way to keep sinning without any self-responsibility or accountability? And that's a good question, Amanda. The Apostle Paul answered a very similar question in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And, you know, we're going through Romans right now. We're not at this point yet, but let's just go ahead and address this anyway. Paul wrote in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? As we see here, the idea that accepting Christ is, you know, somehow a license to sin, it's an issue that was definitely brought up in the first century, and that's why Paul was writing this. And throughout the ages, ever since, you know, ever since the church was founded, I'm sure that this was something that Christians have struggled with. You know, if God is going to forgive me anyway, I may as well, you know, go ahead and sin, right? Well, it doesn't quite work like that. You see, believers in Christ are new creations. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul told us that upon receiving and accepting the gospel, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then, in response to the legalism that the Galatians were struggling with, these people who just wanted to obey the law, Paul says that once a person is filled with the Spirit, he says, quote, live by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. And that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Obviously, the desires of the flesh that Paul is referring to here is sin. That's, that's the desire of the flesh. But you see, here's the thing. The Christian life is a life that has been changed. It's been transformed. It's not what it used to be. The Bible teaches us that there are some things that we should do and some things that we should not do, all for the sake of our love for Christ. 
And let me give you an illustration here. Let's say that a young adult was going for a job interview. You know, maybe they're 17, 18, 19, and they asked to borrow their parents' credit card so that they could go out and get some stuff to prepare for this job interview. And the parents said, sure, charge whatever you need for this, you know, for this job interview. Now, the person goes out and charges, you know, let's say they put a nice suit and tie on their parents' credit card. But, you know, then they start thinking about it and they decide, well, you know, it might really be impressive if I show up for my job interview with a new haircut as well. So they go out and they they charge that haircut onto their parents' credit card, you know, as well. And then to top it all off, let's say that this person decides that it would be really, really impressive if they showed up for this job interview in a $90,000 convertible. You know, obviously, the parent is going to feel like they've been taken advantage of, right? And and rightfully so. <laughs> I mean, if my kids ever did that, you know, Lord help us all. Uh, but when we deliberately and willfully sin, that's exactly what we're doing to God. You know, we're taking advantage of this freedom that we have in the law when we intentionally sin. Paul continued, um, you know, in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 18, he said, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusting. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So to give you the short answer there, no, being a Christian is not a license to sin. Instead of being a slave to sin, you are a slave to righteousness. You have taken on this na- this spirit nature that is opposed to your flesh nature. And yes, it's a struggle. Yes, God will forgive you of your sins, but no, you should not look at it as a license to sin. That's taking advantage of God. But, you know, thank you so much, Amanda. I am praying for you every day. I really am. I'm praying for you, and I pray that you continue to grow in our Lord Jesus and keep growing closer to him. Thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Patrick, who, after hearing the Evolution podcast, wrote, Are carnivorous plants evidence for evolution? They claim Venus flytraps developed mouth-like leaves to eat prey because of poor soil conditions, only found in South Carolina and Florida regions. So, um, thank you, Patrick. That's a good question. And actually, the Venus flytrap is just the opposite. It's a prime example of irreducible complexity. What's irreducible complexity? It means that the whole can't function without every single part. Every part needs every other part. So let's consider the various parts of the Venus flytrap here. First of all, there are trigger hairs that somehow cause an immediate nerve response in the plant. It has to have that reflex, which causes 
causes it to spring closed, you know, closed tightly, it has to have digestive glands and secretive glands, which counter the, the sodium ions of the ants and flies and other insects that it traps. Now, again, what makes something irreducibly complex? When all the parts need each other in order to function. And the Venus flytrap would starve if it only had the digestive glands without having the trigger hairs, since the trigger hairs are necessary for capturing the prey to be digested. And conversely, you know, turning this around, the Venus flytrap would have no need for trigger hairs if there were no digestive glands. So those two things have to be there at the same time because they are useless without the other. And, you know, you could take every part of the Venus flytrap and consider how each part needs every other part and how without every other part in place, every other part is totally useless. So, you know, here are some questions that I have for the atheist who says that, you know, that this is proof of evolution. How does the plant keep from springing its traps when only one trigger hair is touched? If you only touch one trigger hair on the Venus flytrap, it won't close. And that keeps it from responding unnecessarily. You know, if something gets blown in there, like if um, if the wind's blowing and maybe a leaf just like grazes it as it flies uh, as it flies by you know and how does the signal get propagated at the cellular or molecular level of the plant how does that get how does that happen how does it maintain the curvature of the leaves how did trigger hairs form at just the right positions because if those things aren't in position the whole thing falls apart it's not going to work how do the spines along the trap edges grow and overlap to form a secure prison that the fly can't wiggle out of? How does the Venus flytrap close even more tightly after the prey is captured? If, if it gets triggered with nothing in there, it doesn't keep squeezing. But how does it close even more tightly after a fly or an ant is captured so it squeezes the juice out of the bug? How does the plant digest animal tissue? And why does it need to when it can survive without it? And how does it even know to stay closed until it's done digesting and then reopen like new, like nothing happened, without having a smell that would maybe, you know, ward off another fly or a bee or, or whatever? And finally, most importantly, where are the transitional forms for the Venus flytrap? What plant did this evolve from? We don't have a plant that it evolved from. They just say, well, the Venus flytrap evolved, but we don't have a first source. So how can an evolutionist actually claim that it, you know, somehow evolved by chance. So, no, this is not an example of evolution. For an atheist to assert something like that, honestly, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's ad hoc, if you ask me. But this only goes to show you that the atheists don't have, you know, this unbiased perspective on things. You know, you see these things like the the free thinkers society. These aren't free thinkers. These people aren't even thinking. They have to claim that this plant evolved because it's so amazingly complex that it's a perfect example of how God's existence is evident in creation. You know, going back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, God's existence is evident in creation. They have to deny that it was designed this way, even though it's impossible for it to have gotten there by means of evolution, because their atheistic worldview demands it. If they were honest with the evidence, they would have to admit that God exists. Thank you so much for the question, Patrick. That's a really good question, and God bless you. Thank you for sending that in. Our last question today comes from Ernesto, uh, one of my friends on MySpace, who wrote, uh, I have a very good friend of mine that's a Jehovah's Witness, and 
I've heard many people tell me that they change their Bible and a lot of other things to meet their doctrinal teachings, but something they are really known for is that they say that we are destined for life on earth and not heaven, and I just don't know what to do. Is what they say true, or are they simply pulling texts out of context? Here's the verse they used to prove it, Psalm 37, 29. Thanks for any help, and I hope I can help him see God's true word. Well, let's start off by taking a look at the verse in question here, and that's Psalm 37, verse 29, which says, The godly will possess the land and will dwell in it, permanently. And you've got a very good question here, Ernesto. There are several schools of thought, you know, regarding what's going to happen in the end times, but, you know, let's go ahead and go to the authority. That's scripture. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, which says, Then I, and that's John, John uh, the apostle is writing this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And, you know, an amazingly small amount of information is given here about the new heaven and earth. Um, but one thing is significantly different, and that is that there's no there's no sea. And I do think it's very possible that the new heaven and new earth are one creation. Since God is described as being on earth, he doesn't have his throne on heaven anymore. He has his throne down on earth, and he's coexisting among men. And after this new heaven and earth is created by God, uh, you know, he comes down to reign on it. What happens next? Let's turn to Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, which says, Then the angel showed me, and that's John again, the river of the water of life, the water as clear as crystal, pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, producing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. So who's going to be there? God's going to be there. And, you know, that's that's from the Old Testament as well. If you look at First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 30, uh, the angels are going to be there, according to Mark 13, 32. And the believers, all of God's children are going to be there as well. And that's also verified in uh, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 4. See, what I think heaven is, heaven means eternal joy in the presence of God. So what land was being talked about in Psalm 37, 29? It was talking about the new earth, the new heaven and new earth. Will we inherit it? Absolutely. And I believe that all of God's children will inherit and populate the new heaven and earth. But I don't know if there will be a distinction between heaven and earth when both are made new. But, you know, again, the important thing is that we, as God's people, are going to be able to spend forever with God in his presence. And honestly, if you ask me, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm on earth or if I'm in a garbage can. If I'm with God for all of eternity, hallelujah, 
You know what I mean? So I hope that answers your question. Um, you know, there are some good books that you can read out there on it. Look for stuff by John Walvoord, um, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. He was uh, the former Dallas Theological Seminary president, and he was an authority on end times and Revelation and Daniel. So thank you, Ernesto, for your question. That is a great question and, you know, one that I'm sure a lot of people are going to reap the benefits of. And it's going to enlighten a lot of people. So thank you, Ernesto. And unfortunately, we are out of time here today, but thank you so much for listening. God bless you guys. You are such a blessing to me. Again, don't forget to go to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Look for the survey that I'm going to post on there. If you don't mind, if you just have a few minutes, that would be great. I would appreciate it. God bless you guys. I will see you on Monday when we continue with Romans. Have a great week.